Hello everyone, welcome to Equals, this is Max. Welcome everyone, this is Nabil. Welcome to the latest episode of our Inequality Virus mini-series. And really excited about this one. We're bringing you this episode from here in Nairobi, Kenya, but also Bangalore, India, Oxford, UK, and a sprinkling of Cairo, Egypt. We're going to be talking about something that's on so many of our minds, which is the issue of a vaccine against COVID-19. It's really humanity's best shot at ending this painful pandemic. I mean, it really is on everyone's mind. My seven-year-old son has got a, a candidate for a vaccine. It involves vinegar, food colouring. Uh, he, he wants to get it into phase one trials with his parents, but so far we haven't got that far. But it just, <laughs> just shows, you know, he just did this by himself and it just it's on the minds of all these children too. This is something humanity is desperate for. Let's let's add that to the candidates list there, Max, on, on the vaccine. But look, there's a lot to be said here on the science, isn't there? But really fundamentally at its heart, it's a political question that our world can only be made safer once everybody has access to the science, access to vaccines and treatments. And this idea has really been taking over these last few weeks. We've seen the upsurge of this idea behind a people's vaccine, a vaccine that's patent free, available to all people, all countries, free of charge. No, exactly. And I think, you know, we've been we played a small part in the demands from over 150 world leaders for such a thing for a people's vaccine. And what we really need to do is have an enormous global movement if we're going to overcome the structural inequalities in the way that medicines and treatments are produced, that the inequalities that deliver profits over patients time and again, and deliver medicines for rich white people in rich countries long before they're available for the rest of the world. That's the only way we're going to get a people's vaccine. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's podcast. We've got two fantastic guests to speak to, not just one this time. We're going to kick off speaking to Achal Prabhala. You may have read some of his really great writings over the past few weeks in newspapers around the world. He leads a project called Access Ibso, which is really about fighting for access to medicines in a truly equal way across a developing world. And we'll kick off speaking with to him. And then we're going to speak to Dr. Moga Kamalyani, a very good friend and long-term ally who's been fighting for access to medicines and treatments for many, many years. We're going to hear about the campaign successes and what we can learn from the past as we fight together for this people's vaccine. Brilliant. Let's get to it. Achal, hey, welcome to WeCall. Thank you very, very much for joining us. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you today. And it's great to see you're everywhere right now. I'm reading your pieces around the world, in the media. It seems like it's really the moment for access to meds people who've been fighting this fight to really shine. So welcome. Thank you, Nabil. Thank you very much. It feels uh, nice to have someone interested in what I do since I've been doing it for 18 years without the same level of interest or anywhere close, in fact. Um, but I guess this is what happens when uh, uh, old Etonians need vaccines and treatments too. Suddenly, everyone's in. <laughs> it's amazing. When the rich are in need, the whole world changes. Yep. Brilliant. Let, let me kick off Atal by saying that, you know, let's, let's go into this vaccine that the world is hoping for right now, this vaccine against COVID-19. Now we're seeing huge investments around the world, huge efforts to development. There's all these candidates that we hear of in the news every other day. We're also seeing this massive push for a vaccine to be available, you know, for all people, 
in all countries free of charge, for example, with this people's vaccine. I wanted to ask you just from the start, how much can we rely on big pharma companies to help us get there? So that's an excellent question. And um, thank you for uh, leading that idea around the people's vaccine uh, letter and effort. I, I think it's been very useful and I was delighted to see how much it was covered uh, by, by the media. Um, I think the first useful thing I can say about this is that nothing in the world as it exists currently will automatically lead to all of us getting access to treatments or vaccines for the coronavirus pandemic. There is absolutely nothing that we have that will allow for that unless we change the structures we have, the laws we have, uh, and the manner in which we've thought about access to medicines. It, it sounds like an awful thing to be grateful for, but I, I think that there is some way we can articulate this, that uh, if you're brown or black, if you're not particularly wealthy, and if you live in a not particularly wealthy country, I think you have to be grateful for the fact that wealthy white people are affected by this pandemic, because it means that there will be an effort towards getting treatments and vaccines out. Right. Um, and then I think there is the connected idea that national solutions in the way that we could have thought about them in the past won't work for the coronavirus pandemic. So it actually won't matter to the United Kingdom or the United States if uh, they can strong arm uh, somehow uh, a miracle cure or a vaccine uh, for all their citizens, because the, the problem won't go away unless it goes away in the entire world. Is that is that really really true though? I mean, what? Let's say I'm Boris Johnson and my my vaccine yeah. is uh, developed and I give it to all British people, so they're now immune to COVID nineteen. Why would they care what happens to the rest of the world? One is that I think we are thinking of a vaccine as a sort of magic cure, whereas uh, many reports suggest that. Uh, the way in which the vaccine will work could be quite similar to the way in which uh, the flu shot works. So there is a flu vaccine that we take, which is actually against the coronavirus, just a different uh, uh, variety of the coronavirus, which is the flu shot. I take your point very much. I think that there is a chance that uh, that national interest in the old style can apply. But there's also, I think, an equally good chance that that kind of national interest just won't apply in the world any longer because uh, there will be some degree of vulnerability uh, to this novel coronavirus, regardless of the kinds of vaccines that emerge. Um, uh, and in that sense, I think, or at least until those vaccines emerge, uh, there is an idea of interconnectedness. The fact that uh, when, when COVID-19 exists anywhere in the world, it's a threat even to places where it it doesn't necessarily exist. I think and that's definitely very clear and, and a good explanation. I think listeners would understand vaccine nationalism, but could you could you explain a bit about the other main barrier, which is kind of intellectual property and pharmaceuticals? Because I think it's important for listeners to really understand how that could also restrict supply of, of any discovery. I think the uh, for me, uh, the harshest way to understand this is how I began doing this work, which was in 2002. Uh, it was around access to medicines for AIDS, which was uh, an enormously big problem at the time. 
in 2002, the distance, the distance even today between uh, New York City and Johannesburg is 12,000 kilometers, right? Uh, AIDS drugs were developed in 1996. And so in 1996, it meant that if you had AIDS, it was no more a death sentence. This was a chronic disease. You could manage it in the same way that you manage diabetes, um, any number of other chronic ailments that we've all learned to live with. But that distance, it takes 16 hours to fly between those two cities. That distance took eight years uh, to bridge in terms of AIDS medicines reaching Johannesburg. And the only reason it took eight years for those drugs to reach Johannesburg was intellectual property, which is a fancy way of saying monopoly. And because of the various monopolies around these drugs, it meant that one company could decide what price these drugs would be sold at. That price in the early 2000s was $10,000 a year in the United States. And it meant that at that price, it was it was completely unaffordable, not just to individuals, but also to governments in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia or East Asia, where the entire epidemic of AIDS had moved. And sometimes people, I think, uh, have a romantic idea of vaccines that they are uh, somehow non-profit or uh, less profitable uh, or that they aren't intended to... Uh, be developed as money-making enterprises. And I think, unfortunately, the last time that was true was in the 1950s when um, a whole range of vaccines, including the flu vaccine, uh, came into the world. Uh, the success of the polio vaccine uh, and, and many other vaccines like the flu vaccine that was developed around the same time, I think are, are testimony to the way that they were created. They were public enterprises. But that very quickly changed. Um, and, and one of the best examples to think of it is the pneumonia vaccine. So pneumonia has been a completely preventable condition since the early 1980s. Uh, the PCV-13 was developed in 2013 and is the monopoly property of a giant pharmaceutical company, Pfizer. They sell it for $800 in the United States and they sell it uh, at a graded level in other countries. But the price that it costs the Indian government to buy it at, even after subsidies, is so high that they cannot afford to buy as many as they need uh, for the 13 million babies born every year in India. And as a result, uh, today, in 2020, um, there are uh, 127,000 deaths, infant deaths, uh, due to pneumonia every single year recorded in India. Uh, about 40 years after pneumonia became a preventable condition, uh, seven years after the latest version of a foolproof vaccine was brought to market. That is incredible. That's what that's, you were talking over 100,000 deaths because of their outrageous government-sponsored monopoly that's power. That's exactly right. That's what you're saying. And um, let me just pick up my, my neoliberal hat that I have lying around, and I want to test some of the arguments that, that sometimes get thrown at people like us, Achal. Let me put this to you, Atul. One of the things that we often hear about the IP system is that patents, uh, tough as they are, they actually incentivize the creation of new treatments that our world needs because by having a patent in place, it justifies all the costs into research and development um, that a big pharmaceutical company will then do um, you know, and then profits they make is arguably justified because they made the investment in the first place. 
What do you say to that argument? Uh, yes, of course, there is this idea that incentives drive innovation. Um, and it, it, it both works in the worst ways and fails in the worst ways as well, right? And, and one of the most glaring ways in which it fails is that it fails to provide any kind of new treatment for diseases that are primarily experienced by poor people. The way that the model works at the moment is exactly as you described, uh, a, a heavy dose of incentive from the government, uh, from public sector funding to create enough uh, financial cushions and goals and rewards for uh, pharmaceutical innovation to take place. The important thing to remember is that most of the investment that comes in to uh, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't come from venture capitalists or companies investing their own money. It actually comes from national governments, rich national governments in the United States, in the European Union. Uh, so just in the co coronavirus pandemic, I was doing a roundup of the major commitments that have been made. This is money that's actually been paid out, right? The U.S. government invested uh, close to $500 million in Moderna, which is an American company that has never produced a vaccine but has a candidate that shows some promise. Uh, it's invested $1 billion in AstraZeneca, which has uh, partnered with the Jenner Institute at Oxford University, which is also... Um, an institute which has a leading vaccine candidate. The EU has committed $8 billion towards diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines across every pharmaceutical company you can think of. Uh, there is a new effort underway that I think will come to fruition this week of a further $3 billion investment exclusively aimed at vaccines, which again goes to these private companies. So this is taxpayer money. When we say government money, I think sometimes we obscure where that money comes from. So this is taxpayer money. And Bernie Sanders had a, a very, uh, in, his, in his manner, a very eloquent way of putting it a couple of months ago. He said, uh, why are American customers paying for medicines twice? Uh, first, they're paying for the development of these medicines through their tax uh, contributions. And then secondly, buying it back at market price that a monopolist decides. Actually, aren't governments putting conditions um, on their investments so that consumers further down the line get a better price? Surely there are some conditions out there. You would imagine, right? I mean, any other customer that's spending a large amount of money is providing crucial funding towards creating a pharmaceutical product should surely be able to dictate some terms and conditions in terms of how that would work. Uh, but shockingly, uh, no, that's, that's not what's happening here. For governments, there are absolutely no conditions. There have been no tweaks to the model as it exists. So what they're hoping for is that the model we had before the coronavirus pandemic, which took eight years to get AIDS medicines to South Africa, which has taken like 40 years and counting to get the pneumonia vaccine to India is going to be the same one that will solve the coronavirus pandemic in under a year, right? Which it's just absurd. Uh, but, you know, there's a more important thing there. It's not even that the whole world won't have access, but I think that what the United States and EU are doing is to pursue a model that might not even deliver access to the whole of the United States and Europe. So, you know, we're talking about close to a billion people, you know, or, you know, 450 million in Europe, uh, 350 million uh, in, in, uh, in the United States. And we're talking about uh, a large number of people who need a dose of either the treatment or the vaccine. And none of these companies have ever developed anything on that scale. You know, so one problem with monopolies is that they affect the price that 
these companies charge. There's only one supplier, so you know, take it or leave it. But the other problem that, that's equally important for this pandemic to get us out of it is supply. We need supply, but there is an unprecedented precedented number of uh, doses and vials of treatments and vaccines that we're going to need to get out of this. And none of these companies are capable of, of supplying that, even to one country like the United States, for instance. Actually, this is really interesting. And just staying on this issue of what um, Big Pharma are capable of not and, and trusting their word, there are all these noises out there right now that Big Pharma companies, they're making gestures that look like they want to do things differently. AstraZeneca saying they'll sell a vaccine at cost price, at least in the short term. Um, you know, interesting editorials out there about is this Big Pharma's time for redemption and so on. Well, you know, are these genuine signals that they are making? Should they be congratulated? So, so the first thing I want to say is that any statement that doesn't come with specific commitments and details, I think, uh, should be treated with enormous suspicion. Uh, I, I think pharmaceutical companies are fully aware of their reputation in the world prior to the coronavirus pandemic and now are aware of the massively increased scrutiny on them. Uh, so, of course, pharmaceutical companies have to mouth off any number of platitudes about access, right? But if they're not backed by actual details, then we must treat them with suspicion. You've been very eloquent about the fact this this broken system is not going to deliver for today's corona crisis. If you were in charge and we were doing it differently or learning from successes in the past, what, what, should, what should these rich nations be doing with all this money that they're pouring into vaccines at the moment? The truth is that there is really only one way to get medicines and, treat, and vaccines to everyone everywhere, which is to strip all these treatments and vaccines of any monopoly power whatsoever so that Anyone, anywhere can manufacture them. Uh, th there is a second solution, however, which I think is a, a, a very viable alternative if, again, the US and the EU actually commit to it, if other countries, rich countries, commit to it. And that's the COVID-19 technology pool option that the WHO is exploring. Um, this was on the request of the Costa Rican government. So what they're proposing is a sort of uh, a well a little box in which every technology for the coronavirus pandemic, from diagnostics to uh, uh, treatments to vaccines, can be deposited so that anyone can then make any of those things uh, without monopoly control. And so one thing that the US and EU and the COVID-19 technology pool can do is to mandate cooperation so that we get to these treatments and vaccines faster, right? Uh, we need cooperation in creating a vaccine, and then we need competition in terms of supplying the vaccine. The model that we're following right now is to have competition getting to the vaccine, which is not something that will speed that process up, and then exercising monopoly control that will kill competition after we get the vaccine, right? So we're doing it exactly the wrong way around. Um, and, and this is very frustrating because it's entirely in the control of the richest governments on earth to fix. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually, how you put that there. Actually, look, we're, we're, we're bringing this to the close now. And I wanted to ask you just by ending, do you have any hope that, uh, that things can really change? Where do you find hope in the fight for access to medicines? I think that if there's anything to be hopeful about in this coronavirus pandemic, it is that 
we are all affected in ways that possibly hasn't been true for a century since the last great flu pandemic. I think that there's hope that we will find a more humane and cooperative way to exit the coronavirus pandemic, given the scale of attention, given the number of people who've been affected, given the fact that, unfortunately, and this has to be just said, uh, the fact that rich white people in rich uh, white capitals have been affected by it. What I would really like to have come out of this is uh, some substantial difference in the structure that we have to produce medicines for us in the future, not just in this pandemic, uh, but for all time. I think that's a great way to end. Um, but that was a fascinating interview. I don't know about you, Bill, but I learned an enormous amount. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sure our listeners will too. So we just wanted to say thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on, actually. A huge thank you. And uh, I guess we're standing together in coming weeks and months as this as this fight goes forward, man. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, I enjoy talking to you very much as well. And thank you. Thank you very much. Max, I'm not sure if I've got reflections here. I think I've mainly got outrage. I mean, Big Pharma pretty much surely ranks at the top of the most destructive industries around the world, surely. Oh, that would be an interesting uh, straw poll, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, there's the oil industry, there's the arms industry, but I think they're probably in the top. Banks, yeah. Definitely in the top five, though. Okay, top five, top five will have it. But Max, look, you know, reflecting what on what Achal was talking about there. I do feel particularly angered that our governments have been so subservient to a system that's created these big pharma monopolies at the expense of people's health, at the expense of hundreds of thousands of people dying because we haven't stood up to the big pharma companies. The fact that we're paying as taxpayers um, to fund these big pharma companies, but then not putting conditions on them. Yeah, and in, 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 the, in the face of coronavirus, with this incredible opportunity to use these hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to leverage a change in the system, our governments are rolling over instead. I mean, that's just terrible. Yeah, but the other thing I took, Max, is that there is a real sense of hope that something could change. There's a shift in the debate, and I think 150-plus world leaders signing up to a people's vaccine is a sign of that. But there's also some practical stuff on the table. Yeah, I thought this this idea of pooling patents that the WHO is proposing, I think if we can get enough momentum behind that, if we can get rich nations, particularly the European Union, signed up to that, then that will really start to uh, shake up the patent system and really put the idea on the table of patent-free, free access to vaccines and treatments. Yeah, and if we are going to make gains, it's going to be from learning from history. And that takes us nicely to MOGA to be able to talk about how victories have taken place in the past in the fight for access to meds. Yes, and what she thinks we can do in this fight for people's vaccine. MOGA, hi, welcome to Ecos. And what an honour it is to have to have our big sister, to have, you're like a Yoda figure, I think, in the, in the access to meds movement. You're involved today in the you know in the fight for a people's vaccine and i know you've been involved in the past in many struggles as well now we've heard from actual just now about the challenges of the ip system the solutions on the table i really want to understand from you moga before anything what keeps you going <laughs> what keeps me going is um the reality of access to medicine um 
how the world is unequal in the sense that what decides whether you have access or not is not your patient, not you as a patient or your needs or your doctor um, who prescribes the, the medicine for you, but actually how much is in your pocket and how much the medicine, uh, the price of the medicine is. And that's just not fair. And I, I remember in 2001, I was in the UN big building in, in New York. And as I walked in, I just faced this huge, and I mean huge, picture of an African woman, um, kind of maybe 40 years old, something like that. And she was like lying down on her um, deathbed, I guess, and somebody next to her holding her hand. And under the picture, there was this this text, you shouldn't die alone. And I just cried because at that time there was there were medicines available and I just wanted to scream on the top of my voice to say you shouldn't die full stop because she shouldn't die she should have the medicine and not die and I will never forget that poster and that woman and I'll never forget that moment I mean I'm talking to you now and I feel like I want to cry because it just it, it really grips the heart that some people can have medicine that keeps them alive and they they actually don't because of the system we have for um, charging medicine and providing health care. Moby, you're making, me, you're making me feel quite emotional there about this topic and, <laughs> and thank you for sharing that. Moga, I'm, I'm really interested to hear as well about, you know, you've been involved in some of the iconic struggles in ensuring people have access to medicines. I'm thinking most of all about the victories in terms of the HIV AIDS movement. Could you could you talk us through some of those victories and what we can learn from those to inform what we're going through today? So, I mean, to be honest, at the moment, kind of I'm involved in this COVID-19, I, I, there's lots of deja vu in in. in in, in the story and um, just lots of things that are similar to HIV, even beyond medicine, the misinformation, the uh, inequality, the, you know, the gender issue. There's just loads of things that are so similar that sometimes I get confused. And anyway, so um, HIV was really one of the biggest victories, I think, in, in, in access to medicine. HIV was a death sentence, and these people who got together, they really just did wouldn't accept that. We wouldn't accept that um, the injustice in the, in the global system. So, so people from you know Thailand to South Africa to um, Britain, um, the US, Canada, everywhere, people were uh, coalescing together because the. Because you feel it, because you feel the injustice, it grips you, it really hurts your heart, you just can't, it wrings your heart really. So you, you feel like, I want to do something about that, I can't just ignore it. And, um, and I think that was one of the reasons that, um, that, that, that that movement was successful. And the other thing, of course, we learned our lesson, so, you know, we, we learned about it, we learned about the medicines, we learned about the pricing, we learned how the medicines are made and what and all the role of the intellectual property rights and the role of pharmaceutical companies. So we started following what pharma does 
and basically naming and shaming. And I must say, Pharma did something ridiculous, something really stupid when they took um, basically Nelson Mandela, no less, to court. So 39 companies basically took him, took his government to court over a law that would allow the, the, the medicines would be available in South Africa at some affordable price. And at that time, South Africa was like the hardest hit with HIV. So, I mean, come on, what are you doing? So there was the movement over the world got really hammered the pharma really, really hard. And um, the good media um, followed. And the, at the end, they had to... Um, withdraw the case because of course they I mean that that case has become like a landmark in pharmaceutical companies history and they learned a lot but you know come to COVID if any company goes crazy to um, when on price or, or on monopoly they will have hard time so I think we should as a movement of everybody who is who cares really about about oneself but about others that um that we should have this this pool, this COVID-19 pool that we talk about so that the vaccine can be available, can be produced by so many companies and can be therefore available at low price to so many, to everybody who needs it, really. Yeah. So, Moga, I have to ask a very final question in a short way. Do you have hope that access to medicines can fundamentally change as a result of the coronavirus pandemic? Do you have hope? Of course I have hope. Yes. But it's a once. It's a very, very big opportunity that it has. To, if it doesn't change for a pandemic, you know, how can the the, the system change in a, in normal, as it were, normal life? I mean, what is normal after a pandemic? I don't know. But you know, it it should change, and things should happen in a different way. That we have massive production of good quality vaccine that need, that goes to everybody who needs it at an affordable price. Moga, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm speaking on behalf of Max and myself both, and Max isn't able just to be here for these last few minutes, but I know how much he respects you and how much he's learned and been guided by you over the years. Oh, and folks, that brings us to an end of to this episode today on the People's Vaccine. If you're interested in finding out more about some of the things we've been talking about, about the People's Vaccine, go to peoplesvaccine.org otherwise do check out our twitter page it's at equals hope that's equals hope thank you very very much for joining us again thank you moga moga i think we should close out every episode with you to be honest from now on if that's okay with you (laughs) (laughs) great do join us next time folks thank you very much Bye bye